1: that was one of the first I read this morning, in part because of uh, its writer, Robert Langreth. He joins us on the phone from Massachusetts. He and the team have been doing just some phenomenal work. It really helps us understand the complexities but also both the potentials and the challenges of where we go here uh, medically. He joins us as well as Joel Weber, the editor, of course, of Bloomberg Business Week. Joel's on the phone from Brooklyn. Joel, I want to start with you because you guys have done a really nice job of keeping the medical piece of this front and center, even going back, uh, gosh, it's like five, six, however many weeks ago uh, with some of the great <laughs> cover stories. <laughs> I've lost track of time, bro. Um, but not, help help tee this not up alone. for us.
2: Yeah. So uh, you're right. This is um, uh, sort of one of the beats that we kind of keep coming to in our coverage, um, with, you know, which is the what you know, we look at the fallout and the companies and we got to come back and talk about the science and the tech. Um, Regeneron is really the subject of this story. And Bob and Susan um, have just been this amazing duo uh, throughout this. Um, process and you know we sat them down back when we could sit down to together and it feels like so long ago jason to your point and we said what is um the body of work that you guys want to be working on mm-hmm. and they basically just ticked through a bunch of ideas and we said go get it and it turned out that regeneron of all of all of them was actually sort of in our backyard here in new york uh, the company's based in westchester this is obviously a company that has just surged this year, um, top-performing um, company year-to-date. Um, and it's all because, in part, because of these antibody treatments that they're developing. And, and Bob, why, why is that um, cause for hope?
3: Well, so basically, you know, the reason is that this, 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 this virus, this COVID, you know, you know, it's looking increasingly obvious like it's not going away anytime soon. And we're really going to need to develop custom treatments against this. That, that is things, drugs that are specifically designed to target this COVID because the vaccine might take a while. And these antibodies that Regeneron is developing, those are likely to be some of the first uh, custom-designed drugs that could come up out against uh, this coronavirus and Regeneron in particular has been working on antibodies for a lot of diseases for a long time but they've been even though they don't sell any drugs for infections now they've been quietly working on antibodies for various infections for a long time and they had uh, right literally a month or two before uh, the uh, coronavirus happened they had the most successful trial in the history of uh, Ebola treatment and that was their antibody cocktail Uh, now they're trying to do the same what they do with Ebola for the coronavirus devise antibodies that would, that would block uh, the the key spike proteins from the top of the virus and basically neutralize the virus and you could inject this in and use it either potentially as a treatment for sick patients or kind of as a uh, prophylactic for like high-risk workers like doctors and nurses and people kind of going into the line of fire
0: how how difficult is it bob to get to it like in other words to get finally an antibody treatment that actually works we've got lots of folks working on it but it sounds like that there's a fair amount of failure to be expected along the way
3: uh yeah like anything in drug development there's absolutely no guarantee it will work there could be you know side effects that you know they don't expect uh uh so uh but you know there's absolutely no guarantee that you know that's one reason why there's there's actually several companies working on it so regeneron's one doesn't work out there's AstraZeneca, uh there's a company called Vero Biotechnology, Eli Lilly's working on it. So there's like several kind of efforts that are like semi I semi competing with the other, other parallel efforts. So there's like several kind of shots and goals, kind of what they call it. Uh but there is reason to be hopeful that the, the, the antibody treatment, you know, has a has a, you know, better odds of success uh than, than some other, you know treatments. And one reason is it does have this track record. It worked against Ebola and some particularly tough viral diseases. And we quote in our story, the the former head of the FDA, Scott Gottlieb, saying, you know, if I had to bet on any one drug treatment working out and being able to help, it would be some of these antibody drugs. Because the technology has really, you know, increased amazingly in in speed and specificity over the years.
2: Say say you're able to, you know, say that this proves, uh, you know, as promising as as everyone um, sort of expects how would Regeneron go about scaling it?
3: Yeah, so that is one definite question that we do raise in the story about the antibodies. And historically, you know, antibodies are kind of niche drugs. They're very expensive specialty drugs for things like lung cancer and, and you know, uh, autoimmune diseases that are very expensive and used by, you know, a small segment of the population. So definitely, you know, if this works, they'll this definitely strain the manufacturing capacity. They were talking about by August maybe having the capacity to produce either 20,000 treatments a month Or two hundred thousand like prophylactic treatments a month. So obviously, you know, if this thing is still going strong, that's that's like almost like a drop in the bucket. And there's been apparently there we also discussed in in the story there's like discussions, informal discussions among drug companies and nonprofits, saying, hey, if if your one works out but mine doesn't, like maybe we could all kind of combine our manufacturing capacity to be able to make more of it. So that's an absolutely key question. You know, with any of this stuff, you know, will if it works, will they be able to make enough?
1: Well, and I I do wonder about that sort of collaboration and competition and everything that normally happens in this world. How has that changed as you look across this entire industry, Bob?
3: Well, I mean, you know, different companies, you know, as we look at it, are still, you know, doing different efforts on antibodies and slightly different approaches. So, a lot of different companies doing different things. Uh, What's new and what's different is there kind of is more of a spirit of, like, you know, keeping in touch with what would normally be your competitor and talking to them about. You know, you're doing X and I'm doing Y, and like, how might we work together? And you know, if we need to work together, you know, we will. Uh, so there, there is kind of this feeling that you know, some companies, you know, may may need to donate kind of manufacturing capacity to whatever turns out to work, you know, and not sit on it. You know, if so that may, if someone else's drug works and they and then, but yours doesn't, you may need to kind of you know donate your know, your manufacturing capacity to the cause in some way, and you know, not. Not be worried about the fact that it's someone else's drug that's the one that turned out to work, and that's the kind of discussions that we're hearing are going on right now. Now there's no, there's nothing specific into place because none of these things have you know have worked yet, so we don't know. And so for the time being, it's good that you know Regeneron has a lot, of, and a lot of other companies are you know working on similar type drugs. So we, you know you just can't predict which of these things are going to work till you test them.
0: So, and I do think about we just talked with the CEO of Intercontinental Hotels, like thinking about you know, it will be steps, we hear it from our policymakers, Bob, you know, steps in kind of getting us back to normal. And even if it's not a vaccine, this may be one of the things that starts to help communities, I think you end your story, you know, help communities return to a semi-normal state until a vaccine is finally available. And and just got about 30 seconds here. That's what the drug industry, like we need to be thinking, right? How How do we take those steps? And the drug industry is crucial in all of this.
3: Right. So none none of these drugs in development really will replace the ultimate need for a vaccine. But I think the idea and the thought we do end the story on is that if you can get some treatment that kind of takes the edge off this a little bit, you know, takes off the worst consequences or helps protect some of the key essential workers, you know, then it'll be easier to to kind of end some of the or lessen some of the social distancing until Mm -hmm. that time when we finally get a vaccine.
0: All right. Thank you so much. This is a must read. I'll put it out on Twitter for everybody. It will also be in the magazine this week uh, and on the terminal on Bloomberg.com. Bob Langreth, healthcare reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone, along with Jill Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week magazine.
2: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio.
0: We're also following big time the energy markets. And we do want to, in Business Week Economics at this hour, take a look at oil, an ounce of gold has never bought more barrels of crude in history. That fun fact coming from the Bloomberg, courtesy of Charlie Pellet, Let's talk about what's going on in the energy markets. Ellen Wald, um, certainly well-known to our Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg Businessweek Radio audience, president of Transversal Consulting, senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Center. She wrote the book, Saudi Inc., on the history of Aramco and Saudi Arabia. She joins us on the phone from Jacksonville, Florida. Ellen, nice to have you here with us. I hope you're doing well and your family doing okay, staying safe.
4: Yes, we're all
0: good here. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. And I do wonder, you know, we kicked off our show saying, you know, a penny for um, a barrel of oil, like you can't even get your head around that. Explain to me what is going on. Explain to our audience what's going on in the energy market right now. Is it all about just oversupply here?
4: Well, well when the show started, it was a penny for a barrel of oil, and now the price has actually turned negative. Uh, but it's important to understand what we're actually talking about because that's a big headline, oil prices turn negative. But what we're talking about very specifically is the price on um, WTI, which is the U.S. benchmark, West Texas International, uh, the price for that contract that expires in May. And that contract expires tomorrow. So this is really the last day for trading on that particular oil for delivery in May. And so what this says is basically that everyone who wanted to buy oil for May has bought that oil and they don't want to buy any more of it. Uh, there's been fairly it's fairly small uh, trade volume in terms of trading oil on that May contract. If you look, in fact, at the June contract for WTI, it's actually much higher. It's in the 20s, not that that's a very high price, but it's much higher than a penny or or negative prices. Uh, and there's much more volume on that contract. So um, as a result, the price for these May contracts just kept falling until it went negative. Now, does that mean that someone will pay you to buy oil? Uh, not really. Uh, that That's not really what it means, but essentially means no one is interested in buying oil in the month of May or, or for the month of May. And also that there's very little uh, storage capacity left to store that oil because there, are always, there have always been people out there who will buy oil uh, and then store it in the hopes that they can sell it later for more money. And so uh, the problem we're seeing is that demand for uh, oil has dropped so precipitously so fast and so much right. that we're running out of Places to store that oil. And so that's how you get in these situations like this one where just at the end of that contract, it went negative.
1: And so what's interesting, Ellen, is as we look out. The oil futures market actually paints a, a picture of an economy that looks a little better by the end of the year. You get to sort of November-ish uh, time frame, and, and things seem a, a lot more rational. Keep me honest. Is that, is that true, and how do we look at that as a barometer for the larger economy here?
4: Yeah, you know, if you look at the the, the contracts for for WTI for November right now or at least I'm I'm looking at them as a bit, you know, an hour or two behind, but uh they're they're much higher there in the thirties. Now that's not all that great right. you know for, for oil companies, but it's much better than what we're looking at for next month. And so that does say that at least in the longer term, we're looking at uh, a g- growth in demand. Um, unless, you know, and I think that could change because there's not a whole lot of buying and selling. There's not a whole lot of volume on those contracts, but what they're, what they're going for right. now certainly says that demand should be higher.
0: Ellen, just got about 40 seconds left here. In terms of the longer play here, you know, there's talk about support for the American energy uh, industry and certainly some of the shale players. Should that be done or do you think we need to let the markets play their forces and kind of let it find where it should be settling on its own? Let market for- forces basically win here. And just got, forgive me, just about 25 seconds.
4: Yeah, there's there's a lot of pressure for that. And there's a lot of pressure for that to happen. I think that um, it's not clear that anything that they can do will actually save jobs and that it's probably best. And I do think the consensus now is that you've got to just let the market take its course.
1: All right. We're going to leave it there. Thank you so much. Really good to catch up with you, Ellen Wald. We were trying to sort of figure out our show today. Carol, you were yeah. the first to be like, let's just get Ellen Wald. She'll make yeah. sense of it all for us. And she did. We really appreciate it. President of Transversal Consulting, also a Bloomberg opinion contributor, which is part of the reason we know she's so smart.
2: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio.
1: We look around the world, as we often do, We look to China, and we look to one man to help us figure it all out. It's a big task, but man, he keeps proving up to it. Right, Carol. I totally. Mean, <laughs> oh, oh, he's our guy. guy. He's our guy, Andy Brown. He is the editorial director of Bloomberg New Economy. Well, Chinese we'll see. We're you know New we're bringing him in now. Yeah, so a little we'll pressure see. here. Um, but a, a really fascinating column uh, today, Andy, that we were reading because you take us back to '91 when you moved to uh, Beijing—a very different time, to say the least—and yet a lot of people have been pointing back uh, to that period because it was a little bit of a dark time, sort of like we're in now. And what came after was pretty remarkable.
5: Right.
6: Yeah. The, the, the reason I refer back to this is, you know, as, as you say, I moved to Beijing in 1991. This was two years after the People's Liberation Army had put down the uh, Tiananmen Square pro-democracy protests. And, you know, the conventional wisdom at that at that time among journalists and analysts was that China had set back its economic development by at least a generation you know in the foreign business community much of the foreign business community had fled i mean the, the pla the people's liberation army had drilled machine gun holes in one of the biggest hotels in in beijing the china world hotel and yeah. uh and some of the at least one of the foreign diplomatic uh compounds where we ended up living and, you know, American executives and their families were cowering in Hong Kong and Manila and elsewhere. And, and, and who knew, you know, right at that moment, China was on the cusp of the greatest economic expansion in history. And, and it just skipped through from that moment, you know, pretty much every adversity that the world threw at it. Um, You know, from the Asian financial crisis in the late 1990s to SARS, the the great the great, you know, the great recession in 2008 uh, didn't slow down China one bit. Uh, But finally, this juggernaut has has met its match in COVID-19 and. you know, uh, and and it's and this economy is sh- is is shrinking. It really is a a historic moment.
0: And yet you right. so right, like we know this virus has you know Andy upended kind of all of our projections about global growth, and certainly uh, in terms of China's ambitions and their goals. And yet you write that even so, this has happened. We could see the pandemic speed China along with the rest of Asia their rise put that together for us
6: yeah so so by and large um the economies of east asia have responded to coronavirus much better than economies in the west so we know about the early chinese missteps and cover-ups and blunderings um and suppression of, of of doctors and journalists who were warning about this um, you know, but but it's it's sort of re- recovered and um, and it's 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 reopening and South Korea and Taiwan and Singapore and Hong Kong, um, uh, you know, a number of these East Asian economies have, have come through. They they've shown that they have competent, uh, coordinated governments that uh, they embrace technology, particularly technologies that allow them to track and trace um infections um they're nimble they're agile they're dynamic like asian companies um and it's hard not to come to the conclusion that you know at the the new economy forum we've always had a sense that the center of we've always acknowledged the center of gravity of the global economy is moving east right and it just seems as though this coronavirus
1: has accelerated that trend And so, Andy, when you think about what that acceleration looks like and the trajectory of it, what is it? Not to be too much too parochial here, but what does it mean for the United States?
6: Yeah, you know, I mean, this is to me, this is still all to play for. There are a lot of people who talk about the inevitability of a, a China century or you know, an Asian centru- century. Uh-huh. I'm, not, I'm not quite buying it. Uh-huh. Um, and it's interesting when you, you know, quite often from the outside people looking outside of China, people looking in, they make China up to be this unstoppable juggernaut, you know. But when you actually live there, you, you become acutely aware of the monumental challenges and, and problems you know, environment, demographic and governance and so on. And and the opposite is true in, in America. You know, often people make the mistake of thinking that the United States is on this, this sort of inevitable trajectory, sunset trajectory. And then when you live here, you become aware of America's colossal advantages. Yeah. I, I mean, from its deep pools of capital to the best higher education in the world, the environment. I'm looking out right now over the most pristine, one of the most pristine bodies of water in the world, which is Lake Lake Sunapee in in New Hampshire. And and China doesn't have a body of water anywhere close to this. So, you know, the the issue really is how, you know, how the West responds to to this pandemic. Does it use it as as an opportunity to renew, to rejuvenate or not?
0: Well, like I think about how I'm, using this time to reset some things in my life and I do wonder exactly what you're saying, Andy, of whether or not the United States and Europe use it as a reset um, for themselves. Jason you is smiling. they say as as Carol
1: Masser goes, so goes China. So <laughs> stop it. You're Andy listening. Brown is the
0: best of Bloomberg New is. Economy.
3: I'm
5: in my car. I turn on the radio.
1: How about you let me drive?
2: Oh no 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 no. Who's gonna drive
1: home? Honey, please,
2: I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive.
6: Just
2: drive,
5: baby. It's the question
1: that drives us.
2: is the drive to the close that funky music will drive us till the dawn on bloomberg radio
0: it is time for the drive to the close just about 11 minutes left in the trading day jeff Kruppelman is back with us a friend of the show chief investment strategist and uh head of equities at marine wealth advisors he joins us on the phone from cincinnati uh, and that's exactly where the company is based jeff nice to have you here again with us how are you doing
5: uh, you know, I think like everybody else, you know, staying safe and kind of staying, I think, poised and focused and, and doing the best that we can, but but doing well. How about you?
0: Doing okay. I mean, I think I agree. I think Jason would agree as well. You know, we've all kind of gotten into a, a new rhythm, a new world order, uh, if you will. What's going on in Cincinnati? Give us a little bit of, of the lay of the land and how people are, are doing generally and what's going on.
5: Well, you know, we've been blessed to have a governor that kind of has led and gotten way ahead of this. And so we've been social distancing like everybody else, and, you know, we're working mostly from homes right now. And as I talk to local hospital and healthcare executives, I can tell you just, you know, anecdotally, um, I get kind of word and feedback like we were building, you know, to to triple – or more than that, our ICU capacity, and we're finding that we're only having to do a fraction of that and that, you know, we were looking to to, uh, have to build out capacity that would be temporary and maybe at other sites and that we just don't see that happening right now. So this idea of bending the curve and doing what we need to do and having a governor that has been very, very much a leader, I think, you know, nationally, and just saying, hey, we we've got to um, get in front of this, and, uh, and you know, make sure that we, we don't stop it from spreading more than it should. So I think you know, Ohio, Cincinnati, yeah, you know, we're, we're we're trying to do our part.
1: Yeah, pretty interesting, right? I mean, to see how, and we've talked about this a ton on this show, uh, Jeff, you know, just sort of how governors have really had to to step to the fore. And, you know, Mike DeWine, your governor, uh, it was not easy for him early on because he was a little bit, as you say, sort of out there on, on his own to some extent.
5: Yeah, and it sounds like, you know, there's pressure now being put on the governors. And I think that, you know, this whole kind of dialogue about when do we reopen? How does that take place? There's a lot of execution risk involved in doing that. And so, as you know, we've been cautiously optimistic here throughout. We, we, unlike previous periods where we were outrageously bullish on the market back in 2018, when everyone else was pretty negative, it was, for us, relatively easy to do that because you could go to the data, and the data was good while the mood was negative and valuation was great. Here you've got horrible data, if you look at the economy near term, but you have kind of, you know, the cavalry to the rescue here, doing the right things on the stimulus front to get us through the gap, and you have the coronavirus um, kind of curve being bent, um, but we want to see improvement there, but th- that that keeps you positive longer term that this will be transitory, but I got to tell you, short term, there's a lot of execution risk, so Unlike that previous period when we were, hey, buy on the dips, get after this, it's a wonderful moment, we're more thoughtful in saying hold your ground, trade up where you can into higher quality stocks for now. But it looks like if we manage this like we think we can, that over the next 12 months, we will be at a much better place.
1: So you know oh, we love yeah. talking about names. So tell us where you're trading up. Give us some uh, examples uh, of where, what you might be shedding and what you might be uh, picking up.
5: Sure. And, you know, it's funny because some, sometimes when you
1: do this, people they will question and say, why in the world did you
5: do that? I mean, that just feels like moving dirt, Jeff. <laughs> um, you know, oh, I like that. But... Moving
0: dirt. That's going to stay with us. <laughs>
5: <laughs> yeah, you know, move that dirt pile. But to us, To us, you know, it was thoughtful and and we hope, you know, smart and successful. So an example within consumer discretionary where, you know, you've had a lot of pressure, the retailer's under a lot of pressure. We uh, recently sold Best Buy um, in our flagship strategy and we bought Target. Why did we do that? Well, you know, I I recently moved and I had a wall mount, a 65-inch screen TV, and I got to tell you, I want an installer to do that next time. And, you know, it's a thoughtful electronic uh, kind of, um, you know, purchase where you want to go in and you want to test drive these things and see it. So, uh, Target, on the other hand, is selling consumables and staples to a large extent, product categories that are selling off the the shelves, like you know, hotcakes, and nice dividend yield, nice balance sheet, good management. So, we just think that it's over the next three to six months and a much better, you know, part of the curve there. Another example of a trade we did was selling some oil stocks. We sold some EOG. We sold Onsemi, which is a um, auto-related semiconductor stock, very tethered to the auto industry, which is highly cyclical, as you know. And uh, we bought Qualcomm with those proceeds, tethered to 5G, probably a beneficiary of what's going on as we do much more online. Over time, and again, a beautiful dividend, uh, strong and strengthening balance sheet, as they pay off some acquisitions that they've done in the past, and just we think at at a better center than auto-related at this time. So those are some of the examples, and I can tell you on the sell side, we did come out of Carnival Cruise and came out of you know Marriott and Las Vegas Sands in anticipation of. You know what this could what this could mean, Jeff. For when so, did you
0: do that? You know. When did you do that? How early did you do that play?
5: In, I got to tell you, you know, sometimes what they say it's it's good to be good, but it's also good to be lucky, um, mm. also. And if if you can be both, it's it's great. So some of those things, like Carnival, we were just really disappointed on their execution starting late last year. Mm-hmm. Wow. And someone might say, "Oh, so Jeff, you saw coronavirus coming, huh?" Mm-hmm. And the answer is absolutely not. Um, but We did feel we were ripe for some type of correction or pullback near-term that would set the stage for a nice advance going forward. And so we thought, you know, names like Carnival, if you did get into a little slow patch, uh, you had a correction that, you know, maybe that would be an area within consumer discretionary, um, some mis-execution that you want to move away from. So some of these things, we bought gold late last year. GLD, also in anticipation of, you know, early in the year we had Iran and, you know some some nuclear concerns and whatnot, um, some geopolitical uh, concerns, and so we were uh, looking at maybe some stocks or exposure that would do well in rising right. global uncertainty. So right. we thought about that early, and then we just continued that, and that's how we continued it through right. the period. Right. Well,
0: gotta say we appreciate always um, catching up with you, Jeff, and glad to hear that you are safe and sound. And yeah, I gotta very say. Thoughtful. I also appreciate his honesty about calls and things and totally. just being so frank about things. It's yeah. just refreshing,
1: yeah, to say the least. Performance proves it. All right. Yep. Jeff Krumpleman, thank you so much. Chief Investment Strategist, Head of Equities, one of our faves uh, out at Mariner Wealth Advisors on the phone from Cincinnati. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.